0: Hello, my little historical hormones. You've got Bash here, slutty queer historian to the stars, with a bonus episode about the sacred band of Thebes, an ancient Greek army of gay boyfriends. We'll be back with our fully uncut episodes soon. So these are just a little amuse cooch to tide you over. Enjoy. Time blow with historical okay. So you know when you're at the club and you see some hottie Hot, suddenly you're super self-conscious, you want to come off cool, calm, collected, like a homosexual cucumber who does their taxes on time. Maybe you stop dancing like Britney alone in her house on Instagram, and more like Britney in the year of our Lord 2000 AD. That gorgeous piece of ass could be your spouse by the end of the night, sweetie. Can't risk looking like a total turd until you've tricked them into marrying you. Let's face it. Boyfriends, girlfriends, lovers of all genders and juices act differently in front of one another. So often, we want to present the best version of ourselves, and especially in front of other couples. That's why we go out in the first place, isn't it? To prove you've got a hot piece on your arm and that you guys are totally super kawaii plastic misfantastic. until you're safely back home filling your sweatpants with farts and other liquious gases. Or gaseous liquids, as the case may be. What does all this have to do with queer history, you ask? Well, it turns out the crafty ancient Greeks knew all about these erotic motivations, and one city-state used it to their advantage to build one of the most formidable fighting forces the Greeks had ever seen, the Sacred Band of Thebes. This army unit of 300 men consisted entirely of gay boyfriends, 150 couples, or a hundred thruples, if we're being modern, who protected one another in battle and fought fiercely for their limp-wristed lives. The sacred band were known for never faltering. And as an infantry unit, they were far from the most fearsome looking force around. No horses, no chariots, just spears and shields. And gay. But what better way to face your fears than with your lover at your side? The Thebans knew their homos wouldn't risk looking like little bitches in front of their hearts and cocks deepest desires. Now, do you feel that moisture in your undercarriage? That means it's time to dive in and take a closer look. So come on in. The water is… human temperature. right through our history H-O-N-O. Celebrate ourselves tonight I cover all the things that's still a mystery H-O-N-O. Cause if you think you know you don't Around the world We go, 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 go Time to blow your mind With historical homos Historical homos Historical homos historical homo, 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 homo. talked about ancient Greek homosexuality in our first episode, which of course you've all watched on Deku, a streaming platform to the stars, or listened to on Apple, Spotify, etc. Plug, plug, plug. But in case you missed it, you homophobic toad, here's the crash course. The most common form of homosexuality we know about in ancient Greece was called pederasty. This referred to romantic relationships between older men, which just means anyone over 25, and younger teens who are typically aged 13 to 17, but there's some gray area obviously in that 18 to 25 region. These relationships combined elements of mentorship, courtship, love, and yes, sex. They were socially approved and were typically reserved for the aristocracy, though that was by no means always the case. The middle classes were definitely getting in on the action. Socrates, that little guy, was lower middle class at best and managed to bag himself a princely beauty of the day named Alcibiades. So really, it was anyone who was game. Greek teenage boys officially matured when they turned 18. They had their own version of a bar mitzvah and everything where they chopped off their hair and dedicated it to some god. But between the ages of 18 and 25, roughly, they were known as Epheboy, which, yes, does sound like F a boy. Mother Nature thinks of everything. Ephes, as we say in English, were not full-grown citizen men, nor were they children. This was a transitionary period in which they would likely train for and first see military service before they began participating fully in city life. And their homosexual, pederastic relationships didn't simply end when they turned 18. The older lover, or erastes in Greek, would often maintain ties with his younger beloved, or eromenos, well into adulthood. You like that sassy Greek accent? Mommy knows what you like. And this was important for the Sacred Band of Thebes. Obviously, this army unit wasn't made up of a bunch of teenagers and their twink-chasing daddies. These were adult couples, effectively, who were in loving relationships with one another on a highly do-ask, do-tell basis. Which brings us to the sacred band itself. When did it start? Whose fakakta idea was it? And where do I sign up for this elite force of fagotious babes? The sacred band of Thebes was founded at some point in the 4th century B.C. That's the 300 BC for the mathematically challenged. In Greek, it was called Hojeros Lochos. Thebes, by the way, was the ancient city where Oedipus supposedly fucked his mom and killed his dad. So clearly they were innovative. The sacred band was founded by a guy named Gorgidas, a Theban general. At first, the couples were spread across various regiments of the army. And then this other general named Pelopidas had the brilliant idea to band them together and use them in the vanguard to lead attacks. They became one of the most fearsome forces in Greece for decades until their utter annihilation, and not in a fun anal way, unfortunately, in 338 BC by a bisexual king named Philip of Macedon and his equally bisexual son, Alexander the Great. Thebes, by the way, was also known as a gay old town back in the day, for men at least. But the Sacred Band wasn't just a fun, gay, military kiki. It was formed out of a need, a real need, to fight back against the Spartans, who had taken over Greece after they defeated Athens at the end of the Peloponnesian War in 404 BC. Plutarch, a Greek historian who wrote about 450 years after the Sacred Band was fighting their fight, tells us that Theban homosexuality was also considered to be a helpful way of calming Theban boys down. Apparently, they were a little too rowdy and headstrong back in the day, so the grown-up Thebans had the genius idea of teaching them to play the flute and fall in love with men. Because nothing makes a fancy boy fancier than some flute and some sodomy. You know the deal. Pelopidas inherited the sacred band around 378 or 377 B.C. A few decades after sparta has emerged as the head honcho and he's the first to employ the sacred band against them in an unexpected battle where the spartans outnumber the thebans the sacred band helps thebes carry the day and from then on pelopidas is immortalized as a valiant leader of these militarized phagotrons his friend epaminondas another general who's more of the quiet philosopher strategizer type later helps him win the Battle of Leuctra over the Spartans in 371 BC. Pelopidas leads the sacred band in a charge in this battle and completely destroys the Spartan regiments. Epaminondas later follows it up with a full-blown invasion of Sparta's home territory, liberating the people the Spartans had subjugated for 600 years during their military supremacy. So thanks to a gay army of boyfriends, the course of ancient Greek history was entirely changed in the 4th century BC. Thebes became the leading power in Greece, all because Old Epaminondas was gay and organized. And by the way, we know he was totally gay because he never married, and he had a longtime lover named Asopichos, who I think died on the battlefield, but he was one of our tribe. But Epaminondas wasn't like the others. He was benevolent. He didn't subjugate city states to Thebes' supremacy like Sparta and Athens had done to others. Epaminondas became that rare being in the history books, a Greek homosexual who isn't a totally murdering megalomaniac. Epaminondas died like a fucking baller after defeating the Spartans again at the Battle of Mantinea in 362 BC. He actually got speared in the chest, and when he was ready to die, he said, <clears throat> and I quote, it is time to die, and ordered his men to pull it out, which is exactly how I wanna go, though the cavity in question and the object of penetration may change. He was buried on the field with another one of his lovers, Cephisodorus. Another general, Pamenes, took over the sacred band and continues to lead them as an incredibly disciplined force. He's bringing Bob Fosse, he's bringing Alvin Ailey, and he was the one who formalized the motivation for the regiment, arguing that arranging them around tribal or clan lines was stupid. Distant relatives don't care that much about each other, but, and I quote, a band that is held together by the friendship between lovers is indissoluble and not to be broken, since the lovers are ashamed to play the coward before their beloveds and the beloveds before their lovers, and both stand firm to protect each other. I mean, it's darkly brilliant. Now, just before Pamenes took over, a young Macedonian prince had been sent to live with the Thebans in the 360s. His name was Philip of Macedon, one day father to Alexander the Great. Philip lived with Pamenes and learned a lot about the latest military innovations and the benefits of a professional army. He then returned to his kingdom, to Macedon, and quickly set about copycatting, building his own army, and then eventually pushing his way south into Greece with big ambitions to unite what was essentially a fractured nation of city-states by that point. Philip, this scheming little queen, repays Epaminondas and Pomenes by sending his own son Alexander down south to completely destroy the sacred band of Thebes, down to the last bottom. After this battle in 338 BC, the Battle of Chironea, Philip surveys the battlefield and apparently starts crying like a totally emotionally abusive manipulative dick saying that they died honorably and no one can ever question that. Maybe they just shouldn't have died at all, you toxic cunt. And in totally fair recompense, a giant statue of a lion was built on the field of Chironea to commemorate the fallen queers because nothing says I'm sorry like a giant gay lion. It was rediscovered in 1818, actually, and eventually restored by an underground group of English homos known as the Order of Chironea in the early 20th century, and they required their own episode because it's a whole thing. But even more fascinating to me, excavations in the last century, in the 20th century, recovered the remains of 254 men laid out in seven rows, making Chironea the most fabulously haunted burial ground in history, except for wherever they end up killing the Fab Five. But don't worry, Philip got his comeuppance. After getting involved in a confusing gay love triangle with two boys who were both named Pausanias, one of them stabs Philip to death at his daughter's wedding in front of the entire court. Because you don't fuck with the gay mafia. So there you have it. The Sacred Band of Thebes. A relatively short-lived experiment, but proof that when the straights inevitably go to war against us, you're going to want to side with the gays. Because we've got love on our side, baby. And glitter. And spears And glitter. So tune in next week for more curiosities. And if you like what you hear, give us a five-star rating. Share it with your friends. And tell whoever owns Netflix that I am definitely open to taking meetings. I don't know why they're not calling. (laughs) Love you, hormones.